0: I don't know how many times we hear people in the South say their vote doesn't matter. For the most part, we're a one-party region when it comes to statewide elections, even if that party is flipped over time. That's true. But the South does pick presidents. Or at least
1: presidential nominees. Now that we know that Kamala Harris is the Democratic pick for vice president, we do know that nobody from the South is on either ticket. But the South played a huge role in choosing both tickets, this year and in 2016. Joe Biden was dead in the water until South Carolina voters overwhelmingly backed him. And then a week later, the so-called SEC primary
0: helped him run up the score. And four years earlier, that's the exact same path that Trump and Clinton took to winning their nominations. And the political landscape is changing. You've got transplants who aren't necessarily beholden to the politics of the past. You've got younger people who think differently than their parents' generation about politics. And they're more willing to question the old ways of thinking. The politics of a decade ago aren't necessarily even the politics of right now in the South. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview.
1: I'm John Hammondry. And I'm R.L. Nave. And today we are talking about the so-called Southern strategy. It's a term you may have heard before, specifically as it relates to Richard Nixon's efforts to flip white Democrats in the South who were angry about their former party's new stance on civil rights.
0: But there's more to it than that. I mean, if you look at how the modern Democratic Party built a new coalition with black voters after the civil rights movement, and how the modern Republican Party transformed its party in response, you start to see how the identities of both national parties really have their roots in the South. And today we are speaking with Andrew Maxwell, a professor at the University of Arkansas, whose book, The
1: Long Southern Strategy, explains how courting white voters in the South on issues of race, gender, and religion transformed today's Republican Party. In fact, some have said that the Republican Party is a Southern Party. She argues it wasn't just the backlash to the civil rights movement that flipped the South red but also the backlash of the feminist movement of the 70s and the rise of the Christian coalition in the 80s and 90s. Now, we did record this conversation before Biden announced his running mate would be California Senator Kamala Harris, but it definitely feels relevant right now.
0: We also spoke to Dave Weigel, a reporter for The Washington Post and author of the excellent newsletter, The Trailer. The newsletter tracks campaigns all across the country. He's discussing what's in play in the South and where both parties are putting their resources.
1: So let's go ahead and get started with Dr. Maxwell on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Dr. Angie Maxwell, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I would imagine that most of us aren't familiar with what the Southern strategy entails. It's something we might have heard in passing in a history class or maybe a political science class, but just kind of as a basis, when people refer to the Southern strategy as it relates to politics, what does that mean?
2: I like to call it the short Southern strategy because that's kind of what we've been taught or heard about. And that Is defined as the Republican Party's decision in the 1960s, first with Barry Goldwater in 1964, and then with Richard Nixon in 1968, to really kind of recruit Southern white voters who were upset about civil rights changes to leave the Democratic Party and vote with the Republican Party. You know, the South had been so dominantly. Um, solidly Democratic since forever, minus a short yeah. period after the Civil War. So for as long as we kind of had these things. So it was seen as it's a big turn for the Republican Party to kind of take that direction. And so you saw white Southern voters vote Republican. And then you saw in 1968, after the Voting Rights Act, you saw an influx of African American voters based on that position, the RNC took start aligning with the Democratic Party. Right. And so that's kind of the Southern strategy was exploiting that racial angst that people felt, not all people, but a lot of people, right in the South, a lot of white voters, and um, using it to shift partisan realignment in the region.
1: Well, and what you've written about, and I guess this is what you refer to as the long Southern strategy, is that there was obviously this shift to court some aggrieved Southern voters on the civil rights planks or the anti-civil rights planks. But uh, what was also happening at the time was was the feminist movement and the support for the Equal Rights Amendment, which initially had support from, from Gerald Ford and had support from, from both parties. And then there was kind of that concerted effort again, I guess, in the 70s and really going into the 80s for the Republican Party to retool itself to go after men and women who rejected the Equal Rights Amendment.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is to me, like kind of the biggest contribution of this book or what I see is like the newest thing is this important connecting of the dots. You know, that short Southern strategy, that's kind of like, that's our story of how the South turned red, except in 1976, all the Southern states vote for Jimmy Carter and it goes back to blue. And so at that point I mean what do we do when we lose an election like our party loses an election I mean we just like analyze it to death right the postmortems and the Republican party did that and there were folks going see that was a mistake like we need to go this direction but ultimately that kind of to get an electoral college map victory you know the strategists that said you have got to pick off some states and you've got to break that block in the south or we've got no path right they won out but Come the late 70s, standing in the doorway blocking, you know, integration is seen as too extreme or we have kind of accepted some civil rights changes. You know, it doesn't have that same sense of urgency maybe that it had in the 60s. And so Reagan, Ronald Reagan's team polls 40,000 American women and realizes watching the anti-ERA movement, which starts in 73, and ends up killing the Equal Rights Amendment. And a lot of Southern white women get involved with that. That's when they got politicized and organized with that anti-ERA movement. They see that and they think, maybe we can get those voters. Maybe we can pull the people who are upset about changes or the way they see it as changes to traditional gender roles. And so the Republican Party in 1980 drops the ERA from its platform after having it in there for 40 years, I mean, they were the first party to put it in. And there was a whole huge contingency of Republican feminists who were devastated that the party went that direction. But it brought those Southern white women, a lot of Southern white men had gone on the race issues, but not all, but it really brought along Southern white women to the Republican party. And then again, in 1992, Bill Clinton wins back five southern states and starts making inroads in more southern states. And so that's when, you know, Republicans kind of go back to the drawing board and say, what else can we double down on? And they really push the relationship with, you know, kind of fundamentalist churches and their leadership and the kind of social conservative and kind of morphs into some Christian nationalism really becomes a political kind of thing. And we it's the combination of the three. Appealing to people with racial resentment, appealing to people with what we call is kind of modern sexism, which is a kind of distrust of feminism and a Christian nationalist kind of spirit that gets you that, you know, majority victory, you know, in the South. So it takes a lot longer. It was a long effort to flip the South.
1: And it's interesting. Because I mean I think most of us now accept that you know the civil rights movement, which was born in the south and, and predominantly happened in the South, obviously it was happening in in major cities across the country as well. but you know that that kind of shaped reshaped the future of the Democratic Party. What I find fascinating and I learned in part from your book and in part from the TV show Mrs. America, the GOP, the modern GOP was also formed in part by another movement, but it was a movement. By conservative, largely white women, predominantly in the South, and I think you write in your book or, or maybe quote somebody else as as having said that you know in some ways the Republican Party became the southern party, and that, that that has shaped you know even candidates in Nevada or Montana are having to run on planks now that would appeal to southerners perhaps more than they even appeal to to those states' voters. How do Southern Democrats and southern Republicans? differ right now from their counterparts in other parts of the country?
2: I mean, I think for people who've grown up or lived in the South, you know, a lot of their life, you realize that it is, you know, an identity, you know, structure that has, you know, a lot of power. You know, it can also mean a lot of things. We have a lot of African-American folks who live in the South who also claim a Southern identity, right? And there are some good aspects of Southern identity, you know, since of family, stewards of the earth, you know, all of this kind of hospitality, all those things. But the bad aspects of Southern white culture, that is what the strategists and one wing of the GOP really pushed and used to break that kind of psychological bond between Southern white voters and the Democratic Party. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, think about right now, if you're real strong in your views of a party, what would it take to make you vote for the other party? right, and flip that. It'd it'd take a lot, right? And so they really had to play to like the deepest divisions and cleavages and exploit them. And so they kind of rebranded the modern Republican Party in a Southern image, so to speak. And it's important to know that and how it affects the rest of the country, because racial resentment and modern sexism and Christian nationalism, they don't have any geographic boundaries. You know, there's people that fill those things all over the country, of course. Now, they're nowhere in as dense a concentration, you know, geographically on a map as they are in the South. But they pick up voters, you know, kind of all over the place. Now, for Southern Democrats, it's really interesting. And I don't actually write a lot about this in the book, but I've done some research on it. If you're a Southern white Democrat, we find that you're not real moderate you're actually like pretty progressive or left. And it's kind of like if you get out from kind of under that branded, so dominant in so much of the South kind of GOP value system, you go far left. And then of course, you know, African-American voters in the South were really savvy even before they had the right to vote in some places. And were are looking for what the parties did. I mean, Martin Luther King, like talked to politicians on both sides and so their alliance now with the Democratic Party in such high numbers is because of these positions the parties have taken. Um, I think Democrats sometimes take it for granted and shouldn't, because as a bloc, particularly African-American women are just so politically astute and have been such participants in, you know, shaping policy for a really, you know, kind of long time. So it really it really kind of polarized things When you decide to make values and identity issues, which actually GOP did, and you make that the dividing line, it's emotional. You know, it's not just we disagree on the tax code. It's fundamental stuff. And so it's it's polarized. It worked for the GOP. It helped them, you know, secure several victories nationally, but it did it on these emotional things.
1: Well, and I guess I mean, it's certainly not a chicken or egg situation because we know in part where it started, but for voters who are growing up in the South now, for example, it seems fair to say that it's not just political parties that have relied on the long southern strategy that there's been you know brands, there's been maybe activist groups like like the n r a for example, certainly news media organizations. I would say that Fox News has certainly used uh, the southern strategy in in the same way that the Republican Party has. And so at some point, is the Southern strategy simply reflecting the voter sentiments in the South, or is it creating them?
2: So I say this in the book, and we know this, right? Come election cycles, politicians, you know, either they show up and they, they're paying attention. You're like, whoa, it must be election season, right? You know, the Republicans were way ahead of the Democrats on polling in terms of not polling horse race, who's winning, but Deep dive polling, understanding. Like I had mentioned, Reagan's team polled 40,000 American women. Well, they divided them into 64 categories. They gave each one a name like Betty's and Helen's and Donna's and they kind of archetypes. So they didn't assume they were all the same. And based on that, they were able to kind of devise, you know, what they wanted to say. They were way ahead of the game. So I think when they decided to pick those, you know, we're going to turn right on this to pick up these voters. It was there already, but they poured gasoline on it. You know, each election cycle. So, for example, think about the caravan, like this visuals of like, and it's literally fabricated. But it creates anxiety in people about demographic changes and will there be enough certain government, you know, services for everyone, and will it change? you know, my community, right? All these people that have that frustration or kind of resentment, it absolutely stirs it up, right? The anti-feminists, I mean, this we know. Their talking points when they tried to kill the ERA, you talk about fake news. There were plenty of legitimate things to debate the ERA about, but they said it was going to force women to work, force them, right? And that it was going to, for men would no longer have to pay any childcare. They could just leave divorce and leave women on the streets, right? And that, you know, you were gonna be forced to serve in the military on the front lines, none of which the ERA said. But if you're one of these women and you're growing up in that kind of Southern white culture of that day and age, it's terrifying. If, you, if somebody's telling you it's gonna make you have to get a job and you're thinking, I don't have childcare, there's not even a network in place for me to do this. How's this gonna be possible? You know, they're raised in a time period and kind of a dependent culture. That was terrifying. And then they'd say the feminists are making fun of you. Right. So insult politics. And, you know, the feminism was choice. The ERA, the early Republican advocates of the ERA just wanted particularly widows, a woman's husband, for them to get the same amount of money in Social Security and to have equal employment opportunities if they had to go, if they had to, go support their family or if they chose to, but it was choice. And, you know, Phyllis Schlafly really, you know, spelled a doomsday scenario, a doomsday scenario for women and it scared women. And I mean, I understand that, but it was the accelerant, you know, that was absolutely, you know, poured on.
0: Coming up after the break, Dr. Maxwell discusses how Southerners can push for better leaders in the South.
1: And Dave Weigel tells us what both parties have planned for the South this year.
3: For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is.
2: My mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects
0: me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising
3: cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing, I hope that's not the case. but. We're committed to to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You know, let's flash forward to today. It seems like the election of Donald Trump was certainly an accelerant in a lot of things in politics. But it also seems like nationally, it ripped the scab off of a lot of things and that we have spent the last few years really reckoning with on a national level, kind of a history of misogyny and a history of racism. We're starting to see that reflect in the votes of suburban white women nationally. I don't know if we're seeing that in the South or not. But demographically, the South is changing. Historically, most Southern states have been unitary states where one party has controlled everything, whether it was the Democrats um, for a long time and now has been the Republicans. Are we at a point where we could start seeing two parties vying for parts of the South, if not this cycle certainly going forward?
2: Lord, I hope so, right? You know, our democracy is best when there's two-party competition. I'd even like multi-party competition but in our current system, because then it becomes a contest of ideas. You know, what happens when one party politics rule and it was true for the Democrats, it's true for the Republicans, is it becomes a contest of personality. I mean, that's what V.O. Key, the famous, you know, political scientist of the South, wrote in 1949. He called it the droll facade, which means when they're not fighting about policies and reforms, it becomes who's like me, who's outrageous. It became a politics of entertainment, like tent revival, like giant rallies. That is a long history in the South. And so we lose focus on holding these politicians accountable for, on both sides, for reforms that help the people in your district, whether that's your state Senate district or your congressional district or your whole state. And that's you know, problematic. But to have real two party competition, you have to have infrastructure for both parties. So the reason it took Republicans 40 years to go from getting people to vote nationally for like Goldwater or Nixon to really turning their whole state red down to a lot of the local level is because they didn't have a Republican Party infrastructure. It takes a long time to build it. Now, what happened to Democrats? They had it for so long. They ran everything for so long they kind of let it slip. I mean, how much party work and building and organizing do you have to do when you're the only game in town, right? And so Democrats now have been in the slow process of trying to reintroduce the party to young people, to reach, you know, communities that don't vote or are apathetic about voting and try to say, you know, this is what we stand for. But it takes several cycles. You know, it just takes time, it takes data it takes you know organizing it takes like a consistent you know kind of brand i do think in texas florida virginia north carolina georgia they're getting close to real two party competition and you will see their states benefit from that because politicians behave better and they do more for people when they know it's not a foregone conclusion that they won't even be opposed right the next election cycle they're held accountable So I would, what I would encourage people to do in the South is look at each office. It's okay to split ticket vote. If there's good Democrats locally that are helping your city, but you like a Republican candidate for something else, that's okay. That's when it works well. If there are some local Republicans in your state rep that you really think have done well for your city and helped higher education or public education, right? But you don't like where the national party's going, show them that in your vote. Because what will happen is that, you know, there's a group in that party that has been fighting to try to turn that party around for and get it off of some of these subjects and focused more on some of its like real conservative principles. And if Trump's reelected, they lose all momentum because they'll say, see, this is what works. When a party loses, everyone goes back to the drawing board and goes, why did we lose? Why did it work? you know if they want to see a different republican party if they're upset about it's gone too far it's there's a way to send that message you know and i think that's important and democrats just have to their biggest struggle is when you become the party that's really trying to build giant coalitions and give everyone a seat at the table it's also really hard to bring people together behind whoever the nominee turns out to be it that's real tough but they're going to have to invest in the party in its long-term effort. And if it's not the candidate you like, I mean, African-American women, for example, do we think Dukakis was their first choice, (laughs) right? Because they know the issues affect other people and they vote because of that, not just the personality or whatever, or it's my favorite candidate. I mean, odds are it's not right? How many people ran on the Democrat side for president this time? So many. And you have to just pay attention beyond just election season, right? If you don't like where your party's going, get involved and change your party.
1: Well, and I think, I mean, particularly in, in the South, where a lot of people feel like, you know, one party is always going to run things because that's the way it has almost always been, other than when things were starting to cross over in, in the 90s. There's a lot of people who probably either would call themselves an independent or would say, you know, I don't care about politics, but they do care about some of these issues. You know, what would you say to those people? And how should people go about trying to maybe persuade people to align on on issues rather than parties?
2: Well, I have a lot of empathy for people who are just like sick of both parties. I get it. I really do. But it is the system. So forget party, crisis. Think about it, your school system, right? Do you want a principal or a superintendent that's just the one you like, right? Who says, you know, things you like to hear, but really doesn't manage things well, right? Like competency, experience, you know, gravitas, caring about the whole country, those things are critical. And if if the Democrat candidate doesn't seem like that kind of person, fine. But it's definitely not the situation we have now, because it has been a policy failure to not have a national strategy on this pandemic. And that isn't a partisan issue. It's just a crisis. And so I'm hoping that people will realize that, like, you know, this country can face real hardships, and it matters the kind of leaders that you have in charge, and will they work across the aisle, and will they put the state first, you know, regardless of what party they are. And I'm, I'm hoping people, you know, see its significance, because this is touching kind of everybody's lives. I would also encourage independence. Almost every state in the country has a ballot initiative process where you can try to get legislation on the ballot if the politicians won't, your state reps and state senators won't pass it. There's almost always a direct democracy-like approach. We passed the minimum wage by ballot initiative in Arkansas. The politicians wouldn't touch it. It passed by 75% of the vote because it was so bad. And that's getting signatures and getting involved. So if there's an issue you love or you think's important and the politicians of either party won't listen to you, You know, there's organizations starting to do that. I think that's awesome. So there's the politics that's noise, right? And then there's politics that is kind of the work for change. I think you can tune out one a little bit and try to focus on your state and local. I tell people when they're really sick of it, go local. What can you do with your city council? What spots are not filled on different commissions and different things? What do you care about, about the streets in your town, the policies at this school, whatever, you know, because you can really see the actual change it creates, you know, when you get involved at that local level. Just don't disengage completely. I know the national noise is tough, but, you know, we need all hands on deck. And so I'm just, I'm hoping we see civic engagement, you know, swell after this pandemic.
0: So now we know a little bit more about how the South got to this point and maybe how we get back towards a two-party system. But what does that look like in
1: 2020? Washington Post Dave Weigel follows campaigns and movements as closely as anyone through his weekly newsletter, The Trailer. He and I chatted about how the resources campaigns are pouring into the states and how new people are pouring in from around the country may give us a hint about what the modern Southern strategy looks like for both parties. Dave Weigel, thanks for coming on the Reckon interview.
3: That's good to be here. Thanks.
1: It seems like every day we're seeing more and more headlines that say people have written off the South, the Southern strategy, ever since Nixon. But now the South is in play, whether it's Georgia or Texas. You know, some even arguing that Alabama Jones may have a chance at a Senate seat. And then sometimes you see headlines about Lindsey Graham or. Mitch McConnell's seats being vulnerable. How much of that is real, based off of what you've been seeing, and how much of it is wishful thinking by the Democrats going forward?
3: I don't know what what wishful thinking is involved here, because uh, Democrats have been very conservative about their spending, at least at the, the Joe Biden campaign level. This is a campaign that watched Hillary Clinton try to expand the map without protecting her flanks in the Midwest, and is not repeating that. So. You've seen, I think in Alabama, definitely in Texas, a little bit in Georgia, you've seen local Democrats say we, they need more. But the electorate that is more friendly to Biden is a combination of people who've lived in these states you know, for generations, black voters in, in all the states we're talking about, some new arrivals, a lot of new arrivals, uh, people who've, who came into the state for work, have college degrees and are not really tied to the Republican Party under Trump. And then some, I, I think you've seen people from, with kind of a Doug Jones background, you know, college-educated white voters who are very comfortable, let's say, voting for Jeff Sessions six years ago or voting Republican pretty much down the ballot. And for whatever reason, uh, and some of that is maybe just a one election, take my vote, and then I'm going to give it back to Republicans' frustration with the economy when you mentioned the Southern strategy, you're seeing it in, in a new way because we've seen more than a month now of the civil rights protests, not all of them polite, not all of them you know the <laughs> kind that you might want to make a, a neat little biopic about or a neat little movie. And I think to the surprise of a lot of people in politics, they've been fairly popular. Republicans, after moving a little bit faster than expected towards saying there are problems in policing, their systemic racism, they've dialed back a little bit. But independent voters moderates, white voters' with college degrees, are on the side of uh, protest, Black Lives Matter, in a way we haven't seen before. And that's, that's complicated what is famous about the Southern strategy, what was really deployed beyond the South in places like Michigan, Maryland, Wisconsin, which is the old Republican coalition of white voters, and from those with higher salaries in the suburbs, country club Republicans, to working class voters in manufacturing. They've got more of those voters, the manufacturer voters, maybe they did eight years ago. They've lost a lot of the voters who maybe a generation previous would have been amenable to a let's crack down on the unrest argument.
1: And let's talk a little bit about Alabama, I guess. Doug Jones, I think he has about an, an $8 million cash on hand advantage over Tommy Tuberville as of last cycle. I'm sure Tuberville will start raising a lot more money now that he's confirmed as the candidate but it seems unlikely that the DNC or the Biden campaign are going to spend a lot of money in Alabama. Is the inverse of that also true? I mean, would the Republicans kind of view Alabama as a sure thing and be less likely to spend money to support Tommy Tuberville?
3: The reservations so far don't show a party that's terribly worried about it. I mean, there are more reservations in Kentucky where Mitch McConnell's not seen as super vulnerable. He just has an opponent who's raised a ton of money and you, you can't sit it out and wait for Democrats to get organized. They're, they're not behaving yet like this is a real problem, I think. So there were two different dynamics. Both were imperfect to Republicans. You know, Jones had his pick, and he was an underdog in either. One was run against Sessions, who clearly had won statewide by landslides, had problems with the president, but maybe not enough to overwhelm the Republican slant of the state. With Tuberville, a little bit less well-known, not vetted in a campaign like this, despite going for it for years, you know, thinking of running for governor a couple years ago. Uh, so they think there are openings, if not the kind of, you know, blow the race openings that Roy Moore gave Jones, there's a bit more. But really, the main thing that Biden's done for Doug Jones is get the nomination. One thing I, I've written about at the Post is that Biden, unlike Hillary Clinton, unlike Barack Obama, really unlike John Kerry, even, he he just is not a figure who animates Republicans or conservative independents. He's he's just He just isn't. There's some time left to try to make him one, but more time has passed since he secured the nomination than is going to pass until we get to the election. And he's just not as scary and he's not appeared as a threat in ads. So he's given Jones some room, but he's not giving him some actual money and support.
1: Well, and it seems like as the map expands in terms of what states are in play, you know, whether it's Montana or Iowa, that affects, I guess, how much money Democrats and Republicans will spend in the South, which may benefit the status quo, or it may benefit, I guess, whoever has m- more energy and money on on hand.
3: Yeah, well, you were talking about it a little bit before. In Texas, Democrats see a shot at, and this is a if the election is going pretty well, if if Biden's winning the election, but maybe not winning Texas, they still see a shot. If you if you lost Texas by a three point four point margin, he would probably be carrying enough state legislative seats to win the, the House of Representatives there. And that would give them a blocking power, at least in redistricting. In Georgia, there's some chance of the same thing. Outside those states, not a lot. You can blunt supermajorities. And one thing you saw in Alabama is when Doug Jones' very hands-on approach to Democratic Party leadership, you no longer have a party there that is as incompetent as it was in 2018, when just losing ground despite having credible candidates uh, for statewide and congressional seats. So the party is more competent in a lot of these places, I think. The decline you saw from year to year in the party since Barack Obama's election—it was sort of arrested in most places by 2018. They're trying to make actual gains. I mean, they, but Democrats have not flipped from red to blue a state legislative seat body in the South since they've lost it. Really, Virginia is the first exception, and that happened eight months ago. So, so they're trying to do basically do a Virginia and a couple other places. But I would point to again Texas and Georgia a little bit Florida, just in terms of cutting the margins down there. And the thing is there's a lot of money in democratic politics. There are big donors who may not always be as responsive as, as Democrats like, uh, but there are a lot of small donors who have been perked up and gotten intrigued in down-ballot races, state rep races, and I covered a lot of them in 2018. Some of that we thought was because of the need to just vote for some Democrats, you know, cast an anti-Trump vote until the election. But again, it's actually kept going. So I think you're going to see more money routing through other Democratic groups. Joe Biden's campaign would be the last mover in the South in terms of showing how invested the party is. You're going to see other Democratic groups do it first. And uh, frankly, the state parties, I mentioned that particular problems in Alabama, state parties were very unhappy at the end of Barack Obama's presidency. The entire job of Tom Perez since becoming DNC chair in 2017 has been prepared for 2020 in part by getting the, the parties at least back off their heels, funded. And you've seen that in the finance reports for a lot of state parties. They're not putting up Shell Nadelson $25 million numbers, but they have some of their best funding that they've ever had. It's allowed them to run what would have been, you know, door-to-door field programs. They're going to have to adapt, they're, and they are adapting with absentee outreach, advertising. But generally, the, the parties are in better shape. I'd say they're closer to where they were maybe in 2010 than where they were in 2016. And that's going to make some difference.
1: Let's look at Georgia, I guess, as a case study, because, you know, Georgia is a state that is increasingly being called purple because of the close election in 2018. Stacey Adams lost a very close election to current governor, Brian Kemp. And now Brian Kemp is waging a very public battle with... Mayor of Atlanta over coronavirus, over masking, and there are two Georgia Senate seats up for grabs because of a special election. Is, is there any rhyme or reason to his strategy? Like, is he of the opinion that Georgia's just not vulnerable, and that's why you know he can kind of take these public stances?
3: Well, that's a big question. It's actually Texas I think of more frequently when you you, you ask if Republicans are, are coasting off politics that would have worked five six years ago, and they're out of date. Georgia's complicated because you have there a you know the secretary state, manage the election process. Uh, I won't go through every one of the controversies, but re- regardless of whether you think that election was up on the up and up or not, indisputably, lots of people thought they registered to vote and didn't get to vote. So the Democratic concerns about Georgia are less, do we have the numbers to win the state at some point? They're actually pretty convinced of that. It's, it's Do we have enough to get past suppression or voter confusion or absentee ballot problems? They're running fairly message coherent campaigns like they did in 2018. And yes, you're, you're seeing Republicans depend a bit more on the appeal of Trump, which might not be resonant right now. So I think in, you're going to see in Georgia, although these are very different races. I mean, David Perdue's got the nomination running for re-election, and he's not running as, as far to the right as a lot of people in other southern states. But you have in the other Senate seat, Doug Collins, Kelly Loeffler, they need to, one of them, maybe both if Democrats split the vote, or, or they're trying to get a seat in, in the runoff in January. And they're running, you know, who can out Trump the other one? I mean, a lot of Woffler's mm-hmm. advertising when it's negative isn't so much about substance. It's about how Collins, you know, worked with Stacey Abrams and he was a criminal defense attorney, you know, kind of pure red meat stuff with not much of a thought about is there some independent in the suburbs who needs to be convinced by this?
1: There are big question marks o- around the races in Kentucky and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham are two of the the better known Republican candidates, their opponents seem to be able to raise a lot of funds purely off of, of who they are running against. Are those seats actually in play? Is that something that Republicans are worried about and Democrats see as a real opportunity?
3: There are funny states to ask about. I'd put it this way. Democrats are happy that money is being sent to Jamie Harris in South Carolina and Amy McGrath, in Kentucky, to be spent in campaigning in South Carolina and Kentucky, they're fine that Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are forced to spend money and time at home. I think that was a large part of the point because the the flip side of this is something you see in Arkansas, which is Tom Cotton having a Democratic challenger who quit the race when it was too late for Democrats to replace him, literally is just spending his campaign money uh, running anti Biden ads because he can. he can he's just you don't you're not restricted he's just buying time in Ohio in order to hurt Joe Biden because he doesn't worry about home. So Democrats are spending that money. It's what I heard referred to in 2004 when uh, Tom Daschle was Senate Majority Leader for Democrats or Senate Leader for Democrats and had to spend a lot of money back at home. Even if they didn't beat him, which they did, Republicans thought it was the tip of the spear. We're just going to force this guy to spend so much money that it can't go to some... Other vulnerable Democrats. I think that's what's happening. Harrison is generally more liked by Democrats in D.C. Not that they dislike McGrath. McGrath was a good candidate who lost a House race in 2018. Harrison's a former state party chair, former James Clyburn aide, who just Democrats know and like, and are and I think have been rooting for, even if they were skeptical if he could pull this off. But those are not. If I think even in a situation where it's a good election night for Democrats and they get 51, 52 Senate seats total. Those wouldn't be the seats that flip. Those are kind of a 1980 Reagan situation, or even a Barack Obama 2008 situation, where every domino is falling the, the other way. And in Kentucky, it's very difficult. This is a state that had a uh, really unpopular Republican governor uh, who made no friends. It was was un, was unendorsed by a lot of people. Still, almost won re-election in 2019 against a a credible Democrat who's been a very popular governor. It's not a state that is really hankering to elect a Democratic senator. It's just that. Amy McGrath's going to have a lot of money. She's going to spend it. And if there is a turn against the party, but it's one of those things, I mean, the, there are some candidates who get in the race and it's better than, for the party that they have real competition as opposed to, I mean, you've seen it sometimes in in place like Alabama, where the party just doesn't get a real candidate and they run some guy who put his name on the ballot. They, they'd prefer to, to at least have a competition.
1: For sure. You have been covering campaigns for a long time. You've been covering the 2020 cycle since what, late 2018, early 2019? You know, if you're listening to this and you haven't already subscribed to Dave's newsletter, the trailer, you should. I'll put a link in the post about how to do that. But what should our audience be watching for in the next three months? What What are the kind of trends that you'll be looking for in terms of understanding and analyzing, you know, what's going to happen in November?
3: Well, it's not just about the president's approval. I mean, this has been unusually hard as elections go to see what's happening. For one, the parties do not have the same Grassroots turnout strategy. Democrats have focused much more in it early on in, well, part one, getting states to make absentee balloting easily available, which is less less in Alabama. There's still restrictions. Part two, using their GOTV to tell people how to turn turn them in without screwing them up, which is actually harder than it sounds. And but as a result, we've seen Democratic turnout in their primaries stay very high. Republican turnout, I think, was a little bit higher than it got credit for. I mean, the more people voted in the Tuberville Sessions runoff and voted in the, the runoff that got Roy Moore out in 2017. So I'm watching that and it's inconclusive, but I, I think the Republican idea that Democrats wouldn't be very excited because they didn't all rally behind Biden initially, I think that's, that's not really a concern anymore. So I look at donations, I look at um, the primary turnout, we're kind of done with primaries in September. And in, th- in that case, I think I really start to look at things like the right and wrong track number when you ask how the country's going, whether you have confidence in the president's handling of, of COVID, whether you have confidence in the president's handling of kind of anything that pops up. I mean, so when I talk about right track, wrong track, that's you. Ask voters who what direction they think the country's headed in. And the old wisdom was if the president is presiding over an environment where more than half the country thinks we're on the wrong track, he loses. Barack Obama kind of disproved that in 2012, I should say. George Bush didn't do that different in 2004. I mean, there's enough kind of hard partisanship where you can overwhelm that. The difference is that we're down to 18, 20% of Americans who think the country's on the right track. That is why there's so much panic among Republicans. Is this, That's not an environment who will tend to reelect an incumbent. And you've also seen in, in terms of, I mentioned the fundraising, one of their Trump cards, I don't mean that pun, I'm sorry about the pun, but one of their, <laughs> one of their advantages was supposed to be, that Donald Trump had a year's head start and a ton of money and Joe Biden couldn't catch up. I think we'll get through the election without Biden having raised more money in total than Trump. But he's already been out him. And Trump has spent close to $900 million in this campaign through the end of June. And he's down by 10 points nationwide. So uh, I think I'm watching the donations to see if, if that keeps up and there's just flagging enthusiasm for Trump. He's going to have small donors. He's going to have Republican base. But when I mentioned the polling of how he's performing on these issues, that, that's the difference. I mean, it, do, it doesn't matter if he has an incredibly passionate base of 35, 40 percent of the country because he won in 2016 because there were third party options on the ballot that some people uh, ran away to. There were some because there were questions about Hillary Clinton that a lot of voters found to be as important as the questions about him. Uh, and because they didn't trust Hillary Clinton uh, about the same level, maybe they trusted her 5 percent more than they trusted Donald Trump. Uh, Not true right now. I mean, as an incumbent president, one, he's not seen as doing very well in solving the crises of the day. And two, he's not seen as honest. Look at national polls. And I think this is different in a place like Alabama. It's in the 30s. It's low 30% of of people who say he's honest. That's just his base. And that's not even the entire base. That means there are some people voting for him who don't think he's honest. That is a problem. One, we, we don't have a lot of precedent for it. We've kind of baked it in because there's all the fact checkers and there's jokes about him making stuff up. But it is a hard place to be if you're, you're an incumbent running negative ads saying my opponent's going to do this and that, my opponent's going to make it so that if you call 911, no one will come if people don't believe you. And I think if there's still mass public skepticism about whether he's doing a good job and whether the country's going the right direction and whether he can be trusted, I mean, I, I think that that would set up the most decisive defeat of a president in quite a while. I mean, literally the first one we've had since uh, 1992, but there's not much of a reservoir of support for him to go back. to. Great.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Dave. Good luck covering the rest of this. And that's our show, folks. You know, RL, if there's one takeaway for me today, it's that movements take a long time, sometimes decades, sometimes centuries. And there's a lot of ground to cover in the South. But it also demands your time and your work if this is going to get done.
0: Right. For example, next week, we'll be looking at the 100th anniversary of Suffrage for White Women as well as the specific role that Southern women have played in shaping both feminist and anti-feminist movements. So thank you this week to Dr.
1: Angie Maxwell and Dave Weigel for speaking with us. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted
0: by me, John Hammondry. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. Subscribe to The Reckon Interview wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website at reckonsouth.com and be sure to follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletters. And until next week, thanks for reckoning with us.